0: Hello and welcome to Marketing Connected. I am your host, Janice Tan. Each week, we will speak with industry leaders on pertinent topics in the marketing and advertising scene across Southeast Asia remotely. Joining us on today's episode is Scott Spirit, S4 Capital's Chief Growth Officer. He was previously with WPP for approximately 15 years and took on the role at S4 Capital last year. Scott gives us the lowdown on what it's like to work with Sir Martin Sorrell once again. He also shares takeaways from the acquisitions he has gone through and dishes out tips for independent agencies that are looking to be acquired. Hi Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. You are one of the first few industry players to join us for our podcast series and I am excited to hear what you have to say. You spent more than 14 years with WPP under Sir Martin Sorrell, and the both of you have reunited once again at S4 Capital. Now, tell us, Scott, what's it like to work for Sir Martin Sorrell again?
1: Again, for the second time, I'm a glutton for punishment. Well, um, my mum my did ask when I told her I was going to go back and, and work for Martin at S4. She was like the first person I told, and she asked if I had Stockholm Syndrome, um, <laughs> which... It was an was a interesting way of putting it. But um, listen, the reality is I had a fantastic uh, time working at WPP. I loved every moment of it. Um, but what I think I really enjoyed most was working with Martin. And he gave me incredible opportunities there. He gave me great roles and responsibilities, um, probably always more than I deserved or, or had earned at that stage, but that's how he pushes people, I think. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to travel around the world. I got to live in amazing places like Shanghai and Singapore. Um, and especially my time in China, I loved. I got to see the sort of transformation of that country uh, before my eyes. Um, and he always trusted me, respected me, uh, gave me a lot of autonomy and guidance. Um, so it, it was, you know, it was honestly a really a great, um time of my life working for him Um, now it wasn't uh, i'm not going to paint it all in in rosy pictures uh it's not always a walk in the park he obviously has huge expectations of people um you know he's i think you 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 know him and and lots of people in the industry know him he's incredibly driven loves to win um and uh has you know very high expectations of everyone that works for him he's a workaholic um so it's not always easy but um you know it's the kind of atmosphere I I enjoy working in to be honest and someone that always mm-hmm. I, I felt got the best out of me so the chance to reunite with him and um come and work at S4 was was really a no brainer for me.
0: How different is it working at S4 Capital compared to WPP?
1: Uh it's very different. I mean I, I you know as I said I love Working at WPP and, and have nothing but happy memories of it. Um, and I actually worked somewhere else um, mm-hmm. in between. So I, when I left WPP shortly after Martin, um, mm-hmm. I took an opportunity to work at a startup actually based here in Singapore called Eureka. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very different environment. They're they're a you know um, small startup. They'd raised I think at that time their Series A, and my job was to help them get their Series B and it's a very tech focused company they develop artificial intelligence products for telecoms companies so it was a, it was a big change for me i went from working for a Company that had 150,000 people to one with less than 50, and it was a totally different way of working as well. It was agile working. It was um, you know I sat in a I sat amongst a team of engineers, watched them do their morning stand-up meetings, their sprints for for product development, um, the way they did test and learn, the way they leveraged technologies like Slack and Atlassian and others, um, and I really enjoyed the kind of what the urgency and the the drive and the agility the independence, the, the sort of decision-making ability and the speed and the things that come up, come with that startup mentality. Um, so it was a great experience for me and a huge contrast. But honestly, I did mm-hmm. miss some of the things at WPP. I missed, you know, it's great having uh, access to resources and access to capital and scale. Um, and I think most of all, I missed the industry itself. I love the advertising industry. I've spent most of my career in it. Um, And I miss my colleagues as well. I had some fantastic colleagues at at WPP who who became friends as well. So I think the great thing about S4 for me is it gives me the best of both worlds. So we're a startup too. We're, we're, I think, 18, 19 months old now. Um, We have that agile mentality. Uh, We do use leverage technology. We're all about being faster, better, and cheaper. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we're a disruptor in our field. So, We're not taking the same approach as other companies. We're trying to disrupt the industry and uh, have a different approach. We leverage technology. We partner with some of the world's biggest tech companies. So companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Adobe, Salesforce, they're all major clients of ours, but they're also our partners. Um, it's an incredibly entrepreneurial and driven culture um, driven obviously by Martin who I get to work with again Um, but also a lot of the um, founder there's a founder mentality there because a lot of the companies that have come into the group um, through the mergers we've done Mm -hmm. um, you know are, are very founder driven and entrepreneurial so it's it's got everything you know I would want from a Small scrappy startup, um, but we're of a scale where we have you know I think a lot of the benefits that that big companies um, have access to as well um, and you know for me personally as I said, I get to work with Martin again, I get to work with this great team of entrepreneurs um, I have a much broader role because there's fewer of us um, so there's a lot more for to me to do it's it's kind of more exciting in that respect um, and uh, yeah it's, a, it's just a really great opportunity.
0: Okay, so we all know that this is currently a challenging time for many companies and individuals worldwide. With so much uncertainty going on, it is safe to say that leaders do play an important role in helping employees tide through this difficult period. How do you as a leader help boost morale during tough times like this?
1: Um, Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's definitely a a difficult time. Um, I think for me, there's probably two key sort of principles that a leader needs to have and i think Mm -hmm. those apply equally in good times and bad so i think for me it's around communication and transparency so you know being open and communicating with people Mm -hmm. and also empathy um understanding what people are going through and trying trying to um build that into your decision making and, and communicate with people around it so i think those are obviously qualities that leaders need to have but i think they're you know, maybe more relevant in times like this, but they're equally relevant in the in, uh, in the good times. Um, you know, I think and it and it goes beyond work as well. I mean work is a part of people's life, but right now this is a you know really crazy different time. We're all stuck at home. Um mm-hmm. we look for we look for leadership beyond, you know, we we're all worried about our careers and our jobs. Uh, and our incomes so we look to our company leadership for that but we're looking to political leadership we're looking to you know family and friends for leadership as well so I think this is a really confusing time for people I think um, as a leader you just need to be there to to help and support people and I think that's Mm -hmm. you know that's very much what I've seen us doing at S4 we're a very tight leadership team we have a daily one-hour meeting Um, and actually ironically you know We used to speak a lot before, but I guess at the beginning of March when we saw kind of what was happening around the world, we instigated this daily one hour meeting. And it's really brought the leadership team together very closely. Um, This allows us to make decisions quickly and be decisive. And I think, um, you know, then allows us to communicate that down into the company very quickly and and be open and transparent with them, which we've certainly tried to do. I mean, personally, my role has probably been more external. So I've been dealing more with uh, investors and shareholders and analysts and just trying to communicate everything with them. They're also looking for for guidance um, and just trying to keep them up to date with how we see things, um, Mm -hmm. reassure them around the traction we have and, how well placed we are to ride through this uh, and stay on track, and I think some of that feeds through, you know, to the to the staff as well. I mean, they see that we are being successful. We're still winning new business. Um, you know, we're still generating good um, PR and publicity, and you know, our share price is doing pretty well as well. So, I think that gives people
0: confidence too. I would like to touch on the acquisition journey that S four has gone on over the past two years. Among the list of firms you guys have acquired include Media Monks, White Balance, Proc Media, Caramel Pictures, and Circus Marketing. What were some of your takeaways during this acquisition journey as well as challenges you faced?
1: In terms of key takeaways, I think the main one for me, which is maybe a bit different from my prior experience, has been the emotional and sort of qualitative side of that journey. So mm-hmm. um, appealing to those entrepreneurs and getting them to buy into our strategy at S4 and our deal structure which is really different and come on that journey with us because we have this kind of um, anti-holding company mentality I guess and the the companies that have joined S4 really share that belief I think they want to build a new approach um, and didn't want to sell out or exit their companies in the traditional model um, so our deal structure is half cash, half stock. So you really have to believe in S four and believe in your ability to to build on that. Um, if you're going to take half um, S four capital stock as 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 a compensation for mm-hmm. for the uh, for the deal, um, so that that's a quite different conversation, and it's a, definitely one a more kind of philosophical conversation than the more kind of technical and valuation conversations that form a part of of any other deal. Um, So, you know, I wouldn't say that's been a challenge. It's definitely been something new, probably something refreshing, actually, and I've enjoyed it. Um, But it's definitely different.
0: Okay, well, I'm sure there might have been some challenges along the way, especially, you know, when you try to get buy in from other firms to come under the wing of S4. What were some of those?
1: yeah I mean a lot of listen, the the companies we've we've uh, merged with and have become part of s 4 are all mm. incredibly um dynamic exciting companies and they were all growing fast before they joined us and have continued mm. to do so afterwards and they're all providing services in um, exciting areas and growth areas so obviously these were often quite competitive situations um, and you know we're the new kid on the block I guess the challenge was persuading the entrepreneurs and the leadership of those um, agencies that we were the right choice. And now, obviously, part of that's around valuation, but it, it's certainly not all about valuation. And there were often, there's been several cases where, uh, in fact, most cases, because because of our deal structure is very different. We we pay 100% up front and we don't do earnouts. Mm-hmm. Um, on paper, that makes our deals look potentially less attractive from a valuation perspective because mm. you know you always believe you're going to hit the in out target and, and make significantly more money um so i guess the challenge for us was persuading um people that we were the best choice and again that came down to culture and belief in the s4 strategy i think you know i think it's it, so far so good um but uh it's mm. uh We're still still at the very early stages of building Mm. this. This is a long-term project for us.
0: The acquisition journey is not clear-cut. And the truth is, sometimes the smaller guys don't know what they're getting into, or they don't know who the right guys are to partner with. Everyone talks about culture and fit, but that is only part of the iceberg. Well, I have been told that you are known as one of the masters when it comes to acquisitions, even in your WPP days. What advice do you have for independent agencies when it comes to valuation and knowing how to price your business?
1: Sure, I'm not sure where you heard that from. Hopefully it was in, <laughs> in a compl- complimentary way rather than a, it, it was. It was anything else. I would disagree actually. So I would say that valuation is probably the tip of the iceberg, and that culture and fit is the big ninety percent or whatever mm-hmm. of the iceberg that's floating underneath. So I think you know most. Um, we have a bit of a different model but if you, if you are going to sell your agency most of the agency groups and you know obviously it, it, the sensible approach would be to talk to several of them um have a pretty similar model to valuation and and mm-hmm. the consulting companies use the same model as well so there are obviously variables on it but i don't think you're going to get wildly different valuations um you know we all we all look at the same metrics and and have the same view on on where value um, how value should be calculated so obviously you know there will be differences in mechanism there'll be slight differences in dollar amounts but i don't think it would be wildly different i think for a successful acquisition and you, you talk about the little guys i guess you you're talking about the person selling their company uh, yes. we're, we're still quite little but uh, but um yeah obviously, obviously bigger than, than the deals we do um i think it really depends on your motivation so i think you have to understand you have to go into a conversation around um m&a with your eyes open and understanding mm-hmm. what your motivations are so and there's no wrong motivation so if you, if you want to sell out in you know, make loads of money and buy an island somewhere, that's, a, that's fine. That's not a bad motivation at all. But if you're going to do that, then you need to structure the deal to achieve that. Um, and that's an exit model. If, if I think, you know, that's um, not the kind of deal we're looking for at S4. It, it, it's, not a, it's not necessarily bad, but, uh, you know, we're looking for people, entrepreneurs, who perhaps have built their agency to a certain level, have lots of ambition, usually quite young and and have big careers ahead of them and want to build it further, but they would like to be part of something bigger to achieve that. Um, And so that's Mm. why I think the way we look at it, you're not exiting or selling out your company. You're buying into the S4 proposition. You're buying into the strategy that we have. And you're literally buying in by taking stock instead of cash dollars. You can't buy an agent. You can't buy an island with... um, S4 stock that's locked up and that you're not allowed to sell for several years. So I think that's a very big difference in what we're doing. Again, it's not a judgment. I think there's nothing wrong with um, with having that exit strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the traditional model, you know, that, that we used at WPP was, was very much a kind of financially driven model. And I think it 's a fair model it 's still the model that the holding companies use and the consulting companies use and it really drives everything around financial metrics and and you know mutual success because if if the deal doesn 't deliver for the the seller and the entrepreneur financially, then it certainly doesn 't deliver for the for the acquirer either um, mm-hmm. our you know our models are a bit different they're they 're really around um, you know, but as i said buying into believing and buying into what we're trying to build and then continuing to build that in the future and the incentive becomes um, the success of S4 rather than the success of your um, individual uh, agency.
0: Are there any guidelines for exit strategies that the industry should take note of?
1: It's a really big decision so I I remember and I, I sat on that other side of the table so many times and you really have to understand that people have put their hearts and souls into to building these companies, right? no one just decides i'm going to start yeah. an agency on a whim right and and certainly if you do, you're probably not going to be successful and in a in a in a situation where you're in a position to sell that agency but mm-hmm. you know people have usually worked really hard for a substantial amount of years. They've had often ups and downs, um, really poured their heart into it, probably made financial, certainly personal sacrifices to get to where they've got to in that position to sell. Um, so, you know, you have to, as an acquirer, you have to understand that. And again, it goes to that point of having empathy. You really have mm-hmm. to understand what it means to the person who's selling you their company. Um, but I think you also, if you are selling your company, you have to do it if your eyes are wide open and you, have, you can't be naive about it. So, you know, the, ideally these deals work for both parties and I think that's certainly the the position that we always went into at, at WPP and certainly the, the structure we use at, at S4. Um, but you can't be naive. I mean, things are going to change. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, that obviously you're going to have a boss for the first time in many years. Um, you're often becoming part of a big public company and that has different sort of stresses and strains in terms of um, how you budget, how you plan, how you um, sort of account for things. Um, and so, you know, you have you have to know that uh, you, you can't be naive and think that nothing's going to be changed. Mm-hmm. You also shouldn't feel that everything's going to be taken out of your control. So I think that the key thing for me, and I would say this to, to anyone who's in that in the position of, of potentially selling their, their company is you need to probably the best way to think about it is you need to feel confident that you can the day that you announce the deal internally and you stand in front of all your colleagues and tell them you should feel comfortable and proud and excited about that news um, mm. and I think if you don't and there's something bothering you then that's something you obviously need to raise and iron out beforehand uh, rather than leaving it till afterwards i think you know a great way of doing that is you know spending time with the people across the company that's potentially going to buy you these are going to be your colleagues and and bosses and peers of the future um spending time with other acquisitions they've done and understanding mm-hmm. how the founders went through that are they still there Did they, was how was the process was it successful um, you know, there are lots of, you know, when when we buy a company, we do quite rigorous due diligence. We do legal due diligence, we do commercial and financial due diligence. Um, but I would expect any entrepreneur to do an equal amount of due diligence on, on us as well and spend mm-hmm. time getting to know us, you know, getting references on us, um, speak to our clients, speak to our partners and really understand what you're getting into because, you know, it's probably commercially the biggest decision of your life I would say if you're an entrepreneur to sell your company Um, and and you know everyone wants it to be successful but it it doesn't always work out that way so the more the more work you do in advance like anything in life the more you go into it with your eyes open more prepared you are um, the more likely it is to be successful I think.
0: What's one misconception that investors often have when investing in marketing firms?
1: You mean like uh, public companies buying stock in them?
0: Yes, or like yeah. just, just any potential um, buyers in the marketing industry, for example.
1: Sure. I mean, I think the the biggest mistake you can make is is pretending that success is anything other than people-driven in our industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we 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 really are agency businesses are people businesses, and, and I think it was David Ogilvy that said that um, you know his his resources got up and, and left the building in the elevator every single day. And if, if they don't come back the next morning, you've got, you've got nothing left. You've got a lease and, and a few laptops. So um, yeah, I think that's, that's the biggest thing and you can do all the financial analysis you want um, and look at the figures and spreadsheets and projections, et cetera. Um, but all of it is driven by people.
0: We all know that digital is exploding right now, but are there any particular areas you are keeping your eye on in terms of growth? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, so I think digital, we're 100% focused on digital, so mm-hmm. we would never do anything uh, outside of digital or traditional. Um, but digital is becoming all-encompassing. So it's, it's, you know, every year, the definition, I guess, of digital gets broader and deeper um, and encompasses more and more. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, there's certainly... I think, as I said before, we we feel like we have the capabilities that we, um, that we need and laid out in our original prospectus. And we have, you know, strong product offering and service offering around data, around digital content and creative and around programmatic. Um, but there are certainly, you know, more we can do there. So more of the same, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. But there are other areas as well. So particularly, you know, you look at what's happened recently with, with uh, with COVID and, and um, some of the trends that have been accelerated. I think, you know, one of our clients is Microsoft and, and the CEO Satya Nadella said they'd seen um, two years of progress in a month uh, in terms of digital transformation. I think actually other people have used even more um, aggressive time periods. Um, you've seen areas like e-commerce um, explode. You've seen online gaming. Um, the way we communicate with each other, um, the way we educate ourselves and our children, um, the way we work, everything is being more and more driven by, by technology and digital. Um, and I think, you know, you see that play into the hands of, of our client base, the, the big tech companies, the the platforms, e-commerce companies, the marketing technology providers. But you also see some great examples, I think, of, of traditional companies who've um invested properly in their digital capabilities and also reap benefits from from some of these trends Mm. Um, so i think you know all of that's been accelerated i guess um you know once we're allowed out again we'll start um over time you know having the more kind of physical experiences and and retail and, and you know going out seeing our friends and stuff like that instead of spending all our time communicating on on our phones Um, But I think there's been this giant leap forward in terms of um, digital adoption. Um, So in any of those areas, I think we would we would look to to just increase and add talent and add capabilities. Um, And I think probably the the focus one for us, you know, where we've seen a lot of growth in the past couple of months, despite COVID, is is data and analytics. Mm -hmm. Um, So we we have a pretty strong pipeline there Um, and then e-commerce as well.
0: Besides these two areas, what is one other trend that excites you today? So, I think
1: one trend that one of the interesting things, and this is much more a US phenomenon mm-hmm. in a way, although I think it will have its sort of repercussions around the world as, as many things do, is um, in the US, they have a very particular way of buying TV advertising. They have the upfronts. So, basically, once a year, the big networks sell commitments and and sell their inventory up front to to clients via via the agency and that's a system that's been in place for many many years uh, and one that's been under a lot of pressure in in the past few years as as budgets have transitioned from traditional to digital Mm -hmm. you know I think clients have seen um, you know less importance of the upfronts and it's a model that's kind of geared towards the media owners and and the uh, and the agencies rather than to the clients and I think this, you know, pandemic has broken that because it's supposed to be happening right now and it's clearly not going to be able to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's sped up um, the view of advertisers as to, you know, how they should treat traditional media versus digital media. And I think what you've seen in the U.S. is this huge boost in um Streaming consumption, so whether that's film, um, TV, music, etc. So companies like Netflix, like Spotify, um, and then you know Disney Plus is probably the an, ama- is an amazing case study. Is probably the, the quickest adopted consumer product in the world. we have got to 50 million subscribers mm-hmm. in a matter of months, uh, and then you have ad-supported ones like Hulu and Peacock and others coming out. So I think that um, you know that the way we consume media has been changing for a long time, but that's only been accelerated. And that drives also the way that clients fund media and buy mm-hmm. advertising. And I think, uh, that I think that what happened this year will be a really fundamental change in that. In other regions like Asia, um, the way TV is bought is not necessarily the same. But uh, still, when you look at many of these countries in Asia, there's still a pretty heavy proportion of money going to traditional TV. Um, Mm. And I think, you know, these streaming platforms are are, are not just boosting um, usership in the U.S., it's happening globally. So I think you'll see similar trends
0: here. S4 has done well during the first quarter of this year, posting a 19% like-for-like increase in gross profit. And this is despite the impact of COVID-19. That said, in general, cost-cutting initiatives are underway across the industry, what do you make of all these initiatives and the headcount cuts that major ad companies and networks are taking?
1: I mean, I think it's very sad. It's it's mm-hmm. it, it is a tough time. I mean, even you, you gave our results, and we were very happy with them. And you know, we're obviously in a in a we're providing services in very much a growth area, so you know, you would expect our results to be to be better. But you know, if you look at it on a month by month basis, I can't remember the exact figures, but we did thirty something percent in January. 20 something in February and and six in, in March. So, you you know, it's not like we were unaffected by COVID. We just Mm -hmm. managed to keep growing through it and hopefully we'll continue to do to do that. Um, But it's not like, it's not a difficult time for us and for our clients. Um, I think for the, for the larger ad companies, um, you know, there wasn't much growth before COVID, right? I mean, if you look Mm -hmm. at last year, I think, um you know omnicom and ipg did a couple of percent growth and publicis and dentsu and wpp went backwards and i think the overall growth in the industry was pretty much 0% um so you know that and economically we were you know last year was a was a good year right the mm-hmm. gdp was up and, and the economy did well um so it's obvious that when you get a hit like covid which is not something that we've ever experienced before um in an industry like ours which which is an industry where um, I think the the reaction of of, of clients when they need to s- save money really quickly, one of the things they do is cut budgets. Um, mm-hmm. So you know you see some of the spend figures declining. You know, seeing ITV, I think their spend went down 40 or 50 percent in in one month in the UK, and you're hearing similar um, similar uh, kind of projections for other media companies in, in April, particularly. And even you know you saw the google and, and facebook and others that they, they had significant declines in march and april um so i don't think it's unusual that everyone's having to resort to to pretty extreme cost-cutting measures it's mm-hmm. it's sad and it's uh it's it's difficult and it's it's horrible for people that are impacted and i think to be fair most people you know that there are other things you cut before you start cutting people. And we've done yeah. our own um, cost measures, you know, the, board, the, the senior execs at S4, we, we all cut our salaries 50% instantly. Um, we, you know, got rid of our cash bonuses. Um, we got rid of some of our leases. We were, you know, in short term, we work style leases in many places. We got rid of them because everyone's working from home obviously, there's no travel, there's no expenses. Um, Mm -hmm. So that, you know, there's plenty of things you can do before you start impacting people. But the reality is people are 60, 60% plus of of a cost base of an agency. Um, And, you know, whilst we've continued to grow through this and been lucky, you know, if you're in an agency that's heavily geared towards traditional media, and TV budgets are down 40%, then you know reality is probably um that there is going to be impact on jobs so it's tough um it, you know i've i've um lost my job in my career before and it's a mm-hmm. horrible horrible experience um i just hope that when companies do do it they try to do it fairly and again with empathy and, and try and help people um you know i've seen some horror stories of sort of group firings on zoom and stuff like that i mean you know that that just makes it all all the worse. I think you know you have to remember that in a in a time like this, you know, it's not just our industry are you know, thirty odd million un- un- newly unemployed people in America. It's it's uh, many many industries that are being hit, uh, and it's not not it's you know it's it's very unfortunate.
0: How can agencies bounce back from this? Well,
1: I think we we all bounce back with our clients, right? So mm-hmm. um, you know, we're in the service industry, we, we are. A reflection of our clients at all times, so if if our clients do well, we do well, if our clients do badly, we do badly. so I think you, you kind of have to look at it um, sector by sector. i don 't think there's an overall shape to the recovery. Um, I think different sectors and even within that different companies will recover at different paces, um, so I think you have to kind of look at your client base. And understand that if you, you know, if you have clients in the travel industry, like airlines and hotels and stuff like that, you know, I don't think it's reasonable to plan that they're going to come back aggressively and quickly in terms Mm -hmm. of, of budget spend. If you've got, you know, if you're fortunate like us to have a heavy technology client base and you've got companies like Netflix and Google and Facebook and Spotify and Amazon, you know, some of whom actually have seen their business metrics increase during COVID, then uh, then I think, you know, you can probably plan for a more V-style recovery. Um, so I think you have to kind of do that analysis. But even in, you know, there are tough sectors out there. Um, if, you know, if you're creative, there, there are opportunities out there. So, you know, clients still need to have their brands out there. They still need awareness. They still mm-hmm. need to sell product. Uh, and we've seen a couple of examples um, in sectors that, are certainly challenged, really challenged by by what's happened, where you know we've moved quickly, we've been creative, we've come up with new solutions, uh, and clients have have embraced that and bought into it, and even created new budgets. So you know we, we did a great campaign for Toyota. We were we were supposed to do all the digital work around the Olympics. Obviously, that got pushed back a year. So mm-hmm. the instant reaction from the client was, well, well, you know, we'll just push that budget back a year. So you know we'll we'll speak to you next year. Um, but actually, we, we came back with an idea that would help them transition, um, build a campaign around how that delay is obviously affecting everyone, but particularly how it's affecting athletes and their training schedules and, and what that means. Um, and they loved that idea and they bought into it and created a new budget for it. We've done work for um, Nike, where obviously all their physical stores are shut. So mm-hmm. you know, the only way you can buy Nike stuff is, is online. Uh, and we we helped set up home studios for one of their influencers who's been doing online fitness training, and linking that to e-commerce. So I think that you know even for some challenged clients, if you're if you're smart and agile and creative, I think mean, you can come up with ideas that can still benefit their business. And that's what clients need right now. They need agencies that can be business partners and. Mm-hmm and help them and step in there and, 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 um, you know, really be creative, which is the heart of our industry. Um, so I, I don't think all is lost. I, I, you know, I'm an optimist at heart. Um, I think these are really difficult times. I think, um, you know, if, if, if you have clients that are in some of the less affected sectors, and I think, you know, you can, you can plan for a, for a, for a bounce back. And in many cases, they've continued spending through this. So, you know, I, I do remain optimistic. Um, but obviously, there's a lot of turbulence in the short term.
0: Okay, do you have time for one last question, Scott? Always. All right. What do you think the agency model of the future looks like? Oh, man, I should have said no.
1: Um, <laughs> I hate that question. I really hate that question. It, 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 there's so many people spend so much time waffling on about that. I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. If, if anyone knew what was going to happen in the future, they would, uh, they would buy the right lottery ticket and, and, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, get out of it, right? So I think the reality is, there probably isn't one model of the future. I mean, I would say that what we're doing at S4, we're, we're certainly trying to I would be super happy if our clients thought we'd built the agency model of the present. Um, that would be quite an achievement, I think. So I, you know, if, if that's what people said about us, I think I'd be pretty happy with that. Obviously we're trying to future proof our business and build, um, a model that, that fits the direction that consumers are are heading and brands are, are heading. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think I'd be I'd be uh, more than happy if clients were happy with, uh, mm-hmm. with the service we were offering today.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to Marketing Connected. I am your host, Janice Tan, and we will be back next week with another session. If you wish to learn about innovation and digital transformation for your business, visit our webinars page at webinars.marketing-interactive.com. Once there, you will have a whole range of topics to choose from which will best aid your business needs. The Marketing Connected series is produced by Marketing Interactive.